To the scripture, let me ask you please to, uh, to take a moment, bow your head, pray with me. Father, again we find ourselves uh, in worship and at your word, very places on this day where we ought to be. So we pray that you will um, fulfill your promise to us to be with us, to teach us and enable us to see. And so I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, that we would see that which is true because it is in your word. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians uh, in chapter 5. Remember, on this particular Advent season, we're concentrating attention not simply on the first coming of Jesus, but on the second coming as well. This passage is about the first Thessalonians in chapter 5. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to be a surprise to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. You kind of get the impression, don't you, that the first coming of Jesus kind of snuck up on people. Uh, It really shouldn't have. Uh, uh, It had been this coming of the Christ, the Messiah, uh, a key component, if not the key component, to all that had been written uh, in the Old Testament in Judaism in that day. Uh, Genesis 3.15, we've talked a great deal about this promise that God makes even in the Garden of Eden that one will come from the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. The promise to Abraham that one will come, if you will, from his family through him and bless all the nations of the earth. Moses made the prophetic remark that one would come like him, a prophet like him would come, uh, and, and thus that signaled a coming of another one, another deliverer, another one like Moses. Uh, There was a promise to David that said that another will come who will sit on your throne, who will be a king and a king forever over my people. Thus they should have had this in their minds always. Now it didn't surprise everybody this first coming of Jesus. As you read the accounts of the angels coming to Mary and Joseph, you get the sense that perhaps they were surprised that they had been chosen for this, but, but, but not a surprise that there was one who was going to come. Zechariah, who was the husband of Elizabeth, who was the father also of John the Baptist, uh, had a sense as well when, when the word came to him that his wife, Elizabeth, who was, who was barren, was going to have a child, and she did, who was John. Uh, uh, he knew the purpose of this child coming. 
And it didn't surprise him, or perhaps he surprised him that it was his child, but, but not a surprise that one would come who would herald the coming of the Messiah, who would be the one who would prepare the way for the one to come. And Elizabeth, when she saw her cousin Mary, who was with child, and Elizabeth was with child, again had a sense, yes, you carry the one, the blessed Lord. And even John, who was in Elizabeth's womb at that time, leapt, it said, the scripture does, for joy. Uh, He knew too and would know as he would make in his adult life preparation for the way of Jesus, the Messiah, to come. And of course, there were the wise men. Uh, they noticed a star and, and knew what it meant. And so they went to Jerusalem. There were the, the, the helpers of Herod, his men, who said, oh, yes, we know about this one who is to be born. He's to be born in Bethlehem. That's where that is. And so there was in their mind, in their consciousness, there were these two old people at the temple. There was Simeon, there was Anna. And they had been spending their whole life in the temple waiting for this one to come, the consolation, the salvation of Israel. And so, 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 so they were waiting when Jesus was brought to the temple. They They knew the people had a sense during the life of Jesus. Is he indeed the one about about whom Moses spoke? Is he the prophet who is to come? So it was this whole rich idea that, yes, one is to come. Oh, he kind of slipped in. I mean, after millennia of of promises made and and him not coming, but all of a sudden, there there he was, but a surprise, but yet not a surprise. Most surprised, ironically, sadly, were the religious leaders of the day that one such as the Christ would come and usurp their place, take their what they thought, authority over the people. They were the ones who were not only surprised but angry that he had come. But the people who lived by way of promise for a great deal of centuries a great deal of time but now he comes But yet even in his coming, they would realize that all was not in a sense done, that there was still more to come. Yes, he'd come, and yes, he'd lived. Yes, he would die. Yes, he would rise. Yes, he would ascend. But but yet they knew from the promises upon which they lived that, that the time in which we now live isn't it. There's still that which is yet to be fulfilled, yet to come. This event that the Old Testament prophets spoke of as the day of the Lord still to come. Uh, The prophet Amos famously, if you will, spoke of it. Amos chapter 5. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. If a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and and, and, uh, leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's it's sort of like that, he says. It's, It's like meeting a lion. It's like meeting a bear. It's like being bit by a serpent. It is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no no brightness at all. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this day which was to come, this day of darkness, this day of judgment. In Isaiah in chapter 13, we, we read this, verse 6. He writes, Wail 
for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Now, in the prophet Isaiah, there was a sort of this twofold fulfillment, the, the prophecy of the enemies of Israel coming, but also of this day that was to come. And he writes, therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I'll punish the the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I'll make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the, ang- in the day of his fierce anger. This poetic language, but yet language that lets us know that something devastating is coming this judgment finally the the prophet Joel speaks of it as well in Joel in chapter 2 he writes blow a trumpet in Zion sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming it's near a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness there is spread upon the mountains and a great and powerful people like that their like has never been before will will be again after them through all the years of all generations. Again, he speaks of fire coming and all this poetic language, but yet clearly the judgment of God to come. There's something else as well. The prophet spoke not only this judgment, this day of the Lord that was to come, but in the midst of this, in the midst of the day of the, the Lord, something, something else as well. And that is, for some at least, there would be this wonderful time of peace. In Isaiah chapter 65, again, in very poetic language, the prophet speaks of that which is to come as well. And he, and he speaks of it in the, in the context of, of, of images of his own day, but, but we get the point. He writes, verse 17, For behold... God says, I create new heavens and a new earth. That which is coming that's going to renew everything. That will change everything on the earth and in heaven. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build one another um, um, and inhabit, for they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall enjoy uh, the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with him. Before they call, I'll answer. While they are speaking, I'll hear the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In other words, God is saying, take everything that is wrong with the world as it is, with the earth as it is, and understand it will all be right. 
there'll be peace. And so, not only were they expecting this Messiah to come and bring the salvation of his people, but the salvation of his people would mean that yes, there would be judgment, but yes, there will be restoration as well. And so there's this sense of judgment still to come. There's this sense of restoration still to come, uh, still to come as well. And this second coming of Jesus uh, and this day of the Lord and this restoration, all of that is, seems to be, as we read through the scripture, combined all together. For instance, when Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, we read from 1st, but in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, notice how he puts these things together. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, coming, the second coming as we refer to it. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our being gathered together with him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, he says, we know the day of the Lord has come because it hasn't come yet because Jesus has, hasn't come yet. And, and, and he says, listen, uh, you've, you've received some word that the day of the Lord has come. No, it hasn't. You know when the day of the Lord comes because that's the day when Jesus comes. So we've spoken, we speak about this coming of Jesus and this day of the Lord as well. And that makes great sense to us. Because we know in the coming of Jesus there will be judgment. Because we know that he's been appointed by God as the judge. John chapter 5. Jesus says, I am the judge. That's who I am. I've been appointed as judge by my father. So we get the sense that when he comes, yes, he will judge. But not only that, he'll bring restoration as well with him. So the question is, if this judgment and restoration is to come, how shall we prepare? Well, fortunately for us, we're not the first people to ask that question. Uh, It was asked, it appears, of this church in Thessalonica. Um, you might remember, you might not, but you might remember if you're a reader of the book of Acts in the Bible, that Paul founded this church, Paul and Silas together were on a missionary journey, founded this church in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17. And uh, when they did, they were only there for three Sabbaths, the scripture says, three Sabbaths, so three weeks through at least three Saturdays consecutively. And, and when they did, there was a, a great uproar that took place. The, the religious leaders of the city got together with some, some wicked people, the scripture says, and, and, and created a mob scene. And, and they went and they arrested the host of Paul and Silas, who was a man by the name of Jason. And the, the, the assault, the, 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 the charge against them really was this, that these men have turned the world upside down and are teaching us things that are contrary to what Caesar is teaching us. And so uh, they went to Jason and, and, and they, they, they took him out, drug him out, and he finally paid them off. He gave them some money, probably a sense of a deposit, a guarantee, saying, trust me, these men won't be any more trouble to you. And uh, then Paul and Silas left the city. You get a sense, though, that, that, that Paul had a feeling that he had left too quickly, and he was quite worried about them. And so later, as he got to Athens, he sent Timothy back to check on them, And then when he was in Corinth, Timothy shows up to him with a report. You can feel, if you will, the heart of Paul in this situation. In 1 Thessalonians in in chapter 2, he puts it like this. Verse 17. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person and not in heart, 
We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but, but Satan hindered us. For what is our joy and our hope or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. In other words, he says, we got torn away from you and I really wanted to come back, but I couldn't. And then he goes on, he says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. In other words, he said, I got stuck in Athens, but I, 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 I sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. In other words, Paul was saying, I was really afraid to leave you in that context because I knew that suffering was coming towards you. We could tell the hostility in the city and we knew that after we left, they'd come against you and I've been worried about you ever since. I want to make sure, I mean, you've only, you've only heard this gospel, you've only had it in front of you for a couple of weeks and now you're being persecuted for your faith. I want to make sure that none of you will be moved away from this. And so that's why he wanted to come. He says, for you yourselves know that we're destined for this. He says, I, I, even before I left, I taught you that this is just the way it is. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. In other words, he said, I don't want you to be upset about the fact that I, Paul, am suffering too. This is just, I, I told you, this is just the destiny of those who follow after Christ. For this reason, why I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And you can just get a sense that Paul, even in the midst of his faith in Christ and, and all of that, and so this gives parents a little comfort, I suppose, to know how it is that we worry about our children and pastors worry about congregations and so forth. He said, you get the sense, he says, I just couldn't sleep at night. I just kept wondering, what's going on in Thessalonica? And so, but Timothy, you got to go. you got to find out and help them and bring me word to see if I really need to go back there. And then verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live uh, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. In other words, Paul says, ah, Timothy came back and said, they're doing all right, even in the midst of this. Now, there were some, there were some questions, there were some issues, but, but Paul was pleased. And so in lieu of his being able to go there, he wrote them from Corinth a couple of letters. This one... First Thessalonians. And, and the theme of both these letters, interestingly enough, helpfully enough, is about the second coming of Jesus. They seem to have had a question about what happens when Jesus returns to those who have already died. And, and what's the relationship with the return of Jesus and those who have already died and those who are still alive? How's that all going to work out? So Paul gives them a little piece to encourage them about that. That was the end of chapter 4. But in chapter 5, you get another sense. And they're asking about preparation. How can we be prepared for this? And, and so Paul begins to lay out. And he says, well, you can be prepared by this, not by knowing when exactly it's going to happen. That's almost always the first question in any kind of preparation. How much time do I have and when's it going to happen? So when's the date? How, how can I know that I'm prepared by that by that time, notice how he puts it, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, how would they have been fully aware of that? No doubt, because Paul had already taught them about that, at least. He had already given them that expression. Now, that expression, thief in the night, is not unique to Paul. It's the exact terminology that Jesus used. And so you get the sense that Paul had been taught by those who had been taught by Jesus. In fact, this goes on throughout this whole letter. Paul, of course, only met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He didn't, as far as we know, have any encounter with Jesus. We don't know if he ever heard Jesus teach or any of that during the course of the earthly ministry of Jesus. But, but at that moment, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we, we know that Paul spent some time uh, in the desert alone and, and learning and all of that. And how much direct relationship or Whatever he had with Jesus, we, we simply don't know. But we know the tradition of the teaching of Jesus was out there. So much so that, for instance, in chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says this, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, we learned this from him. We taught it to you. And then in verse 15 of chapter 4, <clears throat> he puts it in a similar way. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That is from the Lord Jesus. So, so Paul is, is laying out for them about the second coming of Jesus, that which they had learned from Jesus. And you remember in this very difficult passage, but helpful one in Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus lays out a great deal of what was to come. In part, what was to come in the context of the temple. The, Matthew chapter 24 begins with a, a question by the disciples and, and a comment by them concerning the temple. And Jesus would come and lay out, and in 70 AD it would become clear, Aureus, that's what he was talking about, the destruction of the temple. But clearly he was talking about more than that. He was talking about his coming as the, as the Son of Man, ultimately in chapter 25, as the judge, if you will. But, but you remember how Jesus puts it in Matthew 25, verse 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He says, so, so no doubt, Paul laid that out and said, listen, no matter what else you hear, no matter what you think, none of us knows. So don't even go there. Don't think you need to know the exact time of Jesus' return in order to, be, to make preparation, in order to be prepared for that day. None of us knows that amazingly, mysteriously, not even Jesus, right? Whatever that means. And, and so, so no doubt they were, they were taught that. But he says, but be aware that there's a sense in which he'll come like a thief in the night. Now, a thief in the night comes, a thief comes in the night because it's dark and he can hide. A thief comes at night so it can be a surprise. That is, he comes unexpectedly. And then Paul also uses another image, one that Jesus uses in a different context, but, but, but another image, and that is a woman who's in, uh, having labor pains. And in a sense, he says, once that starts, the baby's coming. Once that starts, it's inescapable, it's, it's unavoidable. And he says, he's going to come like a thief in the night, but unexpected, he's going to come like birth pangs on, on a woman uh, who is pregnant, but... but, but, but it will be unexpected, it will be unavoidable, inescapable, that's the way it will be. Now Jesus said it will be sort of like in the days of Noah. A sudden, a surprise, but devastating. 
Now, it's interesting in the days of Noah, you'd think somebody would have gotten the picture and not been too surprised after all those decades of, of, of Noah building this ark and telling people why he was building the ark. In fact, Peter refers to, to Noah as a prophet of righteousness, as a preacher of righteousness. And so you get this sense that there was some word going out in the days of Noah, but, but simply no one was, was paying attention to him in the same way that no one, many, aren't paying attention even now. To realize though Christ has come and he says he's coming again to judge and restore, yet still people are not paying attention. In fact, the way Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is that he he says that they think, verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, all is well, and then sudden destruction will come. I mean, no one's expecting this. Sounds rather ominous. But then Paul goes on, verse 4, with this contrast. He says, but you. In other words, you're not like that. There's, there's a whole group who aren't expecting it, for whom it will be a surprise. Uh, but, but, but you, he says, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to, to surprise you like a thief. In other words, he's saying, those who are in darkness will be surprised. Those who are of the night, if you will, will be surprised. They won't see it. Now, when Jesus returns, everyone will see it. See it. We get that impression even from him. He speaks of his second coming as, as like lightning from the sky. Everybody will see it. It'll, it'll be bright. You'll know that. That isn't the point. He's saying, but, but, but until that point, people will be in so utter darkness that they'll be shocked and surprised that he actually is coming. He says, but not for you, because, because he says, of who you are, you're children of, of the light, children of the day. He says, we're not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep. He says, those who are in darkness are sleeping, but let us keep awake and be sober. In other words, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. The, the image there is, is that's usually when people sleep. That's usually when people carouse and get drunk. It's, it's at night. So he's kind of collapsing that whole image. Be kind of lost on many of our university students these days. <laughs> but, for, but you get the, the point that, that, that Paul is making in that, in that context. Saying that of the nights, lest they're asleep. That of the nights, they can't see. It's dark. They're asleep, unaware, they're drunk, not sober. They think they think rightly. They think they're thinking straightly. They think they're driving their own lives correctly, but yet they're swerving all over the road. They think they're making sense, but they're really not because their perceptions are altered. They're not really thinking correctly. They don't really, really see. This darkness is a condition, a moral condition. It isn't a physical condition. It's a moral condition because of sin. In fact, Jesus speaks of, of darkness, this darkness in which we all find ourselves prior to this light coming to us. In John in chapter 3, uh, Jesus puts this. He says, and verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Remember in our profession of faith we spoke of Jesus as this light who has come this light by which we can see all that is true see we need someone to turn on the light so the darkness is expelled and this is the judgment the light has come into the world that is Jesus himself and people loved darkness rather than light 
because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not, does not come into the light, lest his deeds be exposed. In other words, he's saying they love this darkness. In fact, the apostle speaks of this darkness as a condition, and it's a condition that's brought upon us by our sin through even the work of the evil one. In Second Corinthians and chapter 4, verse 4, of the gospel being veiled to those who don't understand, for those who are perishing, Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. In fact, when Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus about their condition prior to coming to faith, he says this of them in Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, for at one time you were darkness. Now notice how he puts it. It isn't just simply they were in darkness. It wasn't just, just their environment, you see. But when he says you were, in, you were darkness yourself, there was no light in you at all. It was a condition of your heart, just like Jesus spoke of. You're ones who loved that darkness uh, rather than, than light. Thus they were unable to see. Thus they couldn't really see. And so when the judgment would come, they would be completely taken by surprise. They had always thought things were well. They had always thought, whether they're hiding behind a false religion that says to them, oh, things are well. Probably the greatest culprit in the last hundred years has been liberal Protestantism that has simply said, all is well. God is love. Don't worry. The saddest for me, one of them, but probably I would say if I had to list them, which means absolutely nothing, my lists. The saddest chapter to me in all of the scripture is Revelation in chapter 18. This is a judgment that comes upon those who are surprised, those who are thought they lived a good life. In fact, it comes upon those who, who, who other people had thought lived a great life. The, the, the leaders of society, the kings and the merchants, if you will. Revelation 18 verse 9. This judgment passage, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now, we like to put all the bad leaders in this category, you know, just the wicked ones. But, but this is for all those leaders who led, all those kings, all those officials who led without faith in Christ. They're all going to be sad when they see the smoke of, of her burning. That is when the Lord returns. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In other words, we built all of this and now it's gone. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. That is the ones who, who supplied everything for everyone. For since... No one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold and silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wool, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. 
that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Most of those things and those items on the list are things that are wonderful things. Things in that culture we'd all want to have. We can change them with cars and, and computers and, and, uh, and boats and whatever it is that uh, in our culture are the best of the best to have. And they just go and the merchants who have sunk their whole lives in that just mourn and say, we have nothing. We lived in darkness. We thought we saw rightly, but we didn't. We thought that which was beautiful. Uh, we thought that which was ugly was beautiful. We thought that was, was wrong was actually, uh, that which was, we thought was right is actually wrong. They, they lived in darkness. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from them will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, for the great city that, is, that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls for a single hour. All this wealth has been laid waste. In other words, we thought all this was perfect and the best, and now we f- realize it's utterly worthless. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? In other words, we can't imagine anything better than this. And they drew dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. In other words, it is to our our blessing. Those in darkness will be utterly shocked by this. Yet it's real, and it will be devastating to them. But but, but, but Paul gives us this, this great counter. He says, but you... Uh, you're children of the day and, and, and of the light, and we're not of night or darkness, so, so don't sleep as others do, because uh, you don't need to. It's, it's, it's daytime. We don't sleep in the day. Um, be sober. Don't get drunk. It's daytime. Um, for we belong to the day. Therefore, let us be sober, because you see, the light has come. That's the blessing of the first coming of Jesus. He brings light, the blessing of the second as well. We, we read uh, by way of the prophet Isaiah and perhaps one of the most uh, famous, if you will, well-known passages in all of his prophecy, that is chapter 9 of Isaiah, which, which ends with this great line, for unto us a child is born and a son is given and all of that. But it begins like this. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For in the formal, former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land uh, of deep darkness on them the light has shined you've multiplied the nations you've increased its joy they rejoice before you with a joy at the harvest they're glad when they divide the spoil For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, have broken on the day as in Midian. For every brute of the trampling warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. In other words, he's saying, the light has come. And that light comes in this child who indeed uh, was born. Isaiah is fixated, if you will, on this concept of light. One One other passage 
that uh, that we see of this this one uh, who has who has come is 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 this uh, passage. Uh, let me find it in Isaiah in the forties. I'll get it in a moment. Isaiah forty two, verse six. He says this, God does. I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, uh, those who sit in darkness. God says, I will do that. And when Jesus comes on the scene, what does he do? He makes note of who he is. For instance, in Matthew, in chapter 4, Right after Jesus is tempted by Satan, right after John is, is arrested, John the Baptist, um, he comes into uh, Capernaum in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew lays out this prophecy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great, a great light. In fact, when, when Jesus is in the temple and it's time for someone to read the scripture, he, he comes to read it and then he reads uh, this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind to set at liberty all those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, in the coming of Jesus will be the opening of eyes because as John says, he is indeed this one who is light. In fact, Jesus makes this statement of himself in in John in chapter 8. He said in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he goes on to explain what that means. And he goes on to explain what that means by way of taking this man who was born blind and giving him eyes. And Jesus said, see him the light. Because of me, in me, through me, by me, you get to see. No longer in darkness. No longer thinking that which is ugly is, is really beautiful. No longer thinking that which is wrong is really right. No longer seeing that which isn't true of me. But now seeing that which is. No longer, he says, to be in darkness. In fact, this is really the proclamation of the gospel. When, when Paul is, is called by Jesus to be his apostle, here's the, here's the instructions given to him that he, Jesus says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He says that's, that's essentially the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel goes in such a way that people's eyes are open, that they really see. And this, of course, we know, enabling us to see is a work of the Spirit of God. Again, Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He says, listen, um, this, is, this is a work of God. He says, let there be light. 
so we can see. In fact, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he lays it out like this, verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Our inheritance is being able to see. He has delivered us, he says, from the domain or the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So Paul says, listen, live like that. It won't be a surprise to you when Jesus comes. Oh, you won't know when it's going to come, but it won't be a surprise. When it happens, you go, oh yeah, we live by promise. We know that this is coming, and so, so we get it. It won't be that kind of surprise to us, oh, like a thief, but, but, but not to surprise us. Because we're awake, we can see, because we're sober. Well, how can, how can we live like that? Verse 8, he says, listen, I want you to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, because of who we are, he says, now here's how you're to equip yourself, here's how you're to prepare yourself. You're to always be putting on this breastplate, that which covers your heart, this breastplate, that which will keep you protected, this breastplate, which is faith. In some ways you go, duh. Duh. <laughs> I was expecting something like that. Of course, of course faith. But, but you see, it, it isn't a trite thing. He says we constantly be securing and strengthening faith. Why? Because it's by faith in Christ that we see. We, we're given light so we can see and we can see Christ. And then as we live, it's only by faith in him that we continue, you see, to see. It's by faith in Christ that we're able, that we're able to see, we're able to see him, we're able to see the holiness of God, we're able to see our own sin, we're able to see our own need, we're able to see our sufficiency, the sufficiency of Christ for us. And all of this, you see, is reasonable. Is there no God? We know that there is. Is he not holy? We know that he is. Is he not just? We know that he is. Is he not worthy of our love and our submission and our joyful obedience? We know that he is, but do our lives not betray our hearts that we don't love him and joyfully obey him as we ought? Are we then not guilty. And if we are guilty, then, then, then what will become of us? What is our hope before this one who is, before this one who is God, before this one who is holy, before this one who is just, before this one who is worthy? Isn't it this one Christ whom we need one to stand before us. No, one to stand before God for us. One to stand before God for us as the one who has loved God and shown him to be worthy. 
One who also then takes our sin that we might be forgiven so that God's justice can be satisfied and his love be expressed. Is he not the one that we need? You see, that's why we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day so that we know the facts of it, so we ascend to the facts of it, and so we trust in him. And he said, it's that trust, that faith, that when he comes, you won't be surprised. When he comes, you won't be afraid. Because you know that you are not destined for wrath. Because the wrath of God has been taken upon Jesus. And then he says, put on the breastplate of love. You see, as we come to faith and as we really see it and we really understand who Christ is and what he's done, then it's this love that we have for God that that protects us because we see that our life isn't a burden, but but yet a joy. His commandments are not that which are put on us to be a burden, but, but, but rather for us to be, for these commandments to be a joy that we follow them. And this is life. And so we live this life loving him, thankful to him. It's, it's the love that we know that he has for us that keeps us secure, that we know, therefore, that whatever takes place in the context of our life isn't random, but it comes from this one who loves it. And not only that, this love that we have for each other. Because we realize, as we see clearly, that we've been created to live in the image of God, to be those who reflect his image, who glorify him, to realize that he has loved us. We realize that 